word of the Lord from Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever, have ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, sent away, uh, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, now as we have turned our attention and heard your word from Luke 19, we pray your spirit would do your work in our hearts. Father, help us to see the glory of the King revealed here our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to submit to him fully and honor him in all of our days ahead. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the cold winter of 1985, a piano was delivered to a one-room apartment in New York City, and it fit just right in the place that Julie Gold had reserved for it. Julie was about to celebrate her 30th birthday, and her parents' gift to her was sending her the piano from their home in Pennsylvania that she grew up playing. Julie Gold was an aspiring songwriter, and she was very excited to receive her old piano, and she couldn't wait to play it. But the men who had delivered it for her strongly advised not to play the piano for at least 24 hours. It had been on a cold truck for over a day, and the piano strings would need time to adjust to the warmer room temperature and get settled in. So she patiently waited. 
She had an, an idea for a song that, that, that she wanted to work on on the piano, uh, but it had been stirring in her for a while, she thought, so she could let it simmer for another day until she was finally able to sit down and work on the song on her piano. So the next night, after she got home from work, she went to the piano and within two hours had written one of the most famous songs of the past 40 years. Julie Gold's song titled, From a Distance, won the Grammy Award for Song of the Year in 1991 after Bette Midler recorded it. The song is primarily about how good things can look from a distance, but in actuality, once we get up close, once we draw near to how things really are, we will see the troubled condition of our world, the troubled condition that our world really is in. And of course, if, if there is a God, well, he's only watching us from a distance. So we can't expect any help from him. The song goes like this. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace. It's the voice of every man. From a distance, we all have enough, and no one is in need, and there are no guns, no bombs, and no disease, no hungry mouths to feed. From a distance, we are instruments, marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. They are the songs of every man. And God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. If you've heard the song, it, it really is a moving song. It uh, came out when I was in high school, and I remember people in my church talking about how much they liked the song, because of course it declares God is watching us. On secular radio, a song that says God is watching us. But of course, if you pay attention to what's actually being said about God in the song, it is that he's out of touch. He hasn't a clue as to what's really going on, for he's only watching us from a distance. And from a distance, we all have enough, and no one is in need, and there are no, no guns, no bombs, no disease, no hungry mouths to feed. It implies that surely, surely if God would just show up, if he would ever draw near, he'd see what's really going on, and maybe he'd do something. Maybe we'd actually be able to enjoy hope and peace, the song of every man. Well, here in our text this morning, we are shown that God has shown up, that God did draw near to us, not just to see what, what was going on, but he drew near to save his people. He drew near so that his people could have peace. But when God drew near in the person of Jesus Christ, his people ultimately rejected him. So we've come to the completion of the travel narrative of Jesus and the disciples' journey toward Jerusalem. 
in the Gospel of Luke. We are uh, at what has been called the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but we must remember the story that Jesus told that Luke uh, puts right before this text, right before the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It was the parable of the nobleman who went away to receive the kingdom, and in the story, the citizens of the kingdom sent a delegation to say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Remembering that sets us up for how Jesus will be received when he comes into Jerusalem, the place where King David reigned, the the capital city of God's covenant people. Three times here, Luke tells us Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem. There in verse 29, verse 36, and verse 41. He's drawing near. And this, of course, emphasizes that God was not and is not just at a distance but he has come near. And his coming near brought both joy and calamity, depending upon how he was received. So our main theme from this text this morning is when God drew near to save his people, he was ultimately rejected. Let's look first at verses 28 through 38, first section there. Um, Let us take note of the signs that Jesus truly is the promised Savior King here in these verses, 28 through 38. Now, on the night of December 25th, that would be, of course, Christmas Day, 1776, uh, General George Washington led a small army of men across the Delaware River in order to attack a contingent of British forces in the city of Trenton the next morning. A few days then after that victory, on January 2nd, 1777, Washington again led his army back across that Delaware River for another battle against British forces at Trenton, this time against General Cornwallis. And the young Americans were once again victorious in that battle as they would be in the war for American independence. Those crossings of the Delaware River have been immortalized in paintings with George Washington looking incredibly stoic and heroic as he led this this dangerous river crossing in the middle of winter when there were thick chunks of ice uh, all over the river. It was definitely an historic event for our nation. Well, imagine if that remarkable battle with the historic crossings of the ice-filled Delaware River would have been predicted and written down hundreds of years in advance. With the details of the precise location of the crossing and a description of the one who would be leading the charge, along with even the kind of boat that he would have been using to cross the river. Wouldn't that have been something if those predictions were written down and passed on through the generations and had become quite well known? Well, that is what we are dealing with here in our passage this morning. We are at a major historical event in the history of God's people, and the details of how this event played out had been predicted by prophets and recorded hundreds of years in advance. And at all points, to this man 
who we've been following through the Gospel of Luke. This man being the promised Messiah that is the king that God promised to send in order to save his people. So Luke wants us to see this. He wants us to see this. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And he emphasizes the signs that point to how Jesus fulfilled these messianic prophecies. He's already done this, uh, 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 particularly with, with uh, the birth of Jesus. Here, just coming through the Christmas season. We're, we're aware of, of that in the beginning of Luke. That, that was at the beginning of Luke's narrative. And now we are approaching the end of Luke's narrative. Uh, we are beginning here, the final section and we see Luke does that once again. He's put, pointing out for us that this Jesus really is the promised Messiah. He is the king whom God sent to save his people. And he proves it to us by revealing the signs that point to that revelation. Uh, the first sign, as Luke's mentioned, of where Jesus is as he approaches Jerusalem. That's there in verse 29. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. So this is a reference to the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. And these two villages that are mentioned here, Bethany and uh, Bethphage, were on the eastern slope of the mountain, not far from Jerusalem. Historians believe that there was a road uh, that led toward an eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem that, that went through these two villages. Uh, that Jesus would have been using along with his disciples on his way there. So, you know, this would have been quite normal. Not, not a real big deal. He's just on, on the common road that, that everyone would have taken to get there. But, but, but Luke mentions the name of this mountain twice. He mentions it again there in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So Luke is emphasizing the association of this mountain, the Mount of Olives, with Jesus, with the Messiah, the son of David. Uh, in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, King David travels over the Mount of Olives as he escapes Jerusalem and escapes the takeover of the kingdom by his son Absalom. It was in the context of Israel's rejection of David as God's anointed king. And interestingly, the text tells us that David and his company were weeping. They were weeping as they went over the mountain. For, of course, Israel had rejected not only him, but God's anointed, God's Messiah. And so he's weeping as he's traveling over the Mount of Olives. So Luke is connecting the dots here with Jesus and, and, and his weeping over the city of Jerusalem because of their rejection of him, of the anointed king, of the Messiah, in verses 41 through 44. Uh, the, the prophet uh, Zechariah also mentions the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14, verse 4, with the Lord standing on the, on the Mount of Olives there. And the, and the context of that passage seems to be of a battle which the Lord will, will stand upon the earth and destroy uh, those who are fighting against his people, defeat all the Lord's enemies. It also speaks of a cataclysmic event with the mountain splitting in two. While the Lord's feet are on the mountain, 
And, and many believe it is pointing to the return of Christ and, and the last battle, which, which it, it probably is. But, 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 but Luke is just pointing out that this Mount of Olives, where Jesus was, is clearly identified with the Messiah. That Jesus is the Savior King. That's what this sign here is revealing for us. The next uh, clear sign has to do with the way that Jesus will travel down the mountain towards Jerusalem. In verses 30 through 34, Jesus gives instructions to two of his disciples to go into this, this nearby village, uh, either Bethany or Bethphage, and, and retrieve a donkey's colt, which has never yet been ridden, in order for Jesus to ride upon it. This is definitely a change in custom for Jesus, as he would normally just, just walk everywhere he went, along with his disciples. When he traveled, he would just, just walk. Now he was organizing an intentionally symbolic ride into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt. He simply tells the disciples where to find the colt and what to tell those who will ask them why they were untying and taking the colt uh, away from, from its owner. And when they go, Luke says, they found it just as he had told them. And sure enough, they were asked by the owners of the colt why they were untying and, and taking it away. And they respond just the way the Lord commanded them to, to respond. The Lord has need of it. As in, the Lord over all the earth, the one who made all things and owns all things, including all livestock, and in particular, this donkey, he's the one that has need of it at the moment. After all, ultimately, the animal belongs to him. And Luke does not mention any objection at all from the owners. So Luke is showing us both that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which also points to the reception that his disciples will provide for him as he is led down the mountain on the donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It also reveals that Jesus is the divine son of God as he is the one who is perfectly in control of all that is happening here. He is about to enter Jerusalem, and in just a few days, he will be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles, and they will beat him and put him to shame and crucify him, which he has already announced will happen on three separate occasions, and Jesus is letting them know that he is the one who is in charge. He has planned all of this out, even down to this little donkey who's tied up in this village, just waiting for his disciples to come to get him. Jesus riding on the donkey was symbolic of a king riding into the capital city to take place, uh, to take his place on the throne. Uh, we saw King David give similar instructions for his son Solomon to ride on a donkey when he was declared king of Israel in, in 1 Kings chapter 1, when he took the throne uh, as king. We also saw Israelites throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of King Jehu for him to walk on as he was enthroned as king over Israel in 2 Kings chapter 9. So these were all signs that Luke was careful to record for us to reveal to us that Jesus truly is the Christ, 
He is the Savior King that God has promised. Remember Luke's purpose for writing the Gospel of Luke back in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He said there, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty. Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. So have certainty, brothers and sisters. Jesus really is the one sent to save us. He is the one who will bring peace in heaven between God and his sinful people. And as the promised son of David, he will reign forever and ever. The second section, verses 39 through 40, these two verses, let us take note that it was the religious who took the lead in rejecting rather than welcoming the Savior King. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So let's notice who are the ones that were praising Jesus as the king here. It's not those in Jerusalem. It is those following Jesus, the disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. We saw from from, from the passage uh, from the prophet Zechariah, they were just responding in the right way to Jesus drawing near to Jerusalem. They were obeying God's word to rejoice greatly and to shout aloud for their king was coming, riding on that colt, the foal of a donkey. But to the Pharisees hearing this, this was very troubling to them. They knew the prophets, maybe even better than those who were following Jesus. But they did not recognize this event at all as the coming of the Messiah. They did not believe Jesus. They had rejected Jesus and therefore wanted all this rejoicing and proclaiming Jesus as the king to stop. And they assumed Jesus would agree with them. But of course he doesn't. He, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out the same thing. What Luke is showing us here, friends, is, is that there is no middle ground with Jesus. As he had said earlier in Luke 11, whether, uh, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here are those obeying God's call from the prophet Zechariah to rejoice and praise God for the coming of the king into Jerusalem. And here is the opposite response. Rather than the welcoming one, it is a silencing one. The Pharisees basically rebuke Jesus for allowing his disciples to declare him to be the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which was another sign pointing to Jesus being the Messiah, since that was a verse taken from the Messianic Psalm 118. So Jesus' response was basically declaring that, that this, this praise, this, this rejoicing, was inevitable. It had to come out. It had to be declared that no human force could stop or silence this declaration. It would have been similar to... Uh, if there would have been a Pharisee on the night when Jesus was born, out, out there, hanging out with the shepherds, witnessing the heavenly host 
glorifying God in the heavens and praising him, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Because of this baby king that had been born in Bethlehem, Jesus. Can you imagine the Pharisee saying you know, to that, that lead angel, uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but could you have all those angels stop saying that? Just keep them quiet? I mean, come on, it's a little over the top. You know, that would have been impossible to do. Just as Jesus is saying here, God is proclaiming that Jesus is the king. And if his disciples would have stopped from, de from declaring it, then God would have had all creation declare it, even the stones that were all around them on the side of the mountain. So we must take note. We must take note. It was the religious, maybe the most religious, who were the leaders in rejecting Jesus rather than welcoming him. We must be warned as to why that was the case. Luke reports to us in other places that the Pharisees' biggest problem, the thing that kept them from following Jesus, was their own self-righteousness. They loved to look to themselves for their righteousness before God. They believed in their own ability to follow the law and fulfill all the works of righteousness that, that God was commanding of them. They did not recognize that their self-righteousness, in essence, led them to believe that they had no need for a Savior. They refused to, to repent of sin because they did not believe they had any sin to repent of. They trusted in themselves for their righteousness, and that led them to then reject the righteous one reject the one who was truly righteous. He was an adversary. They considered him to be a rival rather than a rescuer. So we must beware, friends, that we don't look to our own deeds. We don't look to our own behavior. We don't look to our own moral goodness as what makes us acceptable in God's sight. For we have none have none to speak of, none to boast of. We are sinners. We are failures of God's righteous, holy law. And we desperately need the Savior. We desperately need the Savior that God sent to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf and to then be condemned for our sin in our place on the cross so that we might be forgiven. If you are with Jesus, if you are one of his people, then that means that you have humbled yourself before him and confessed your sin, your guilt, and your need for him to save you, your need for his righteousness. And when it really hits you, when it really struck you that God willingly forgives you and graciously provides you with perfect righteousness before him, well, then that leads you to praise. 
the Lord Jesus. That leaves you to praise him, to honor him, to glorify Christ with all your heart and to serve him for the rest of your days. Is that who you are? Are you with him or are you against him? Finally, the last paragraph here, verses 41 through 44, we see judgment is inevitable and clearly deserved if we refuse to welcome the one who is sent to save us. Let's read those again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here Luke gives us the, the third mention of Jesus drawing near. Uh, he drew near to the city. He saw the city of Jerusalem and he wept over the city. Great sorrow came over the Lord Jesus. He was saddened by what he knew. God had sent them the Savior, the one who would bring them peace with God, but they had rejected him. And now they were under judgment. The way of peace was now hidden from their eyes. Rather than welcoming Christ, they would crucify him. Rather than humbling themselves before their king, they would self-righteously condemn him. They were the ones who would call for his crucifixion, not the same group of people who had been praising him as they followed him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we are shown that Jesus weeps over them. He has compassion on them. Their coming judgment brings sorrow to him. God's judgment on Jerusalem is what Jesus is talking about here for in just 40 years in 70 AD, the Romans led by Emperor Titus would lay siege on Jerusalem and utterly destroy the city and kill thousands of the Jews there. Much like their ancestors who had turned to idols and away from their covenant savior, these people had turned away from God and pursued self-righteousness and worldliness, failing to honor God and submit to him when God came to them in the person of of Jesus. God's judgment was already on them. And their blindness to recognize Jesus as the Messiah was a clear sign of that. And we in the church in 21st century America ought to particularly take note of one statement that Jesus says in his lament over Jerusalem. It's there in the last verse, verse 44. It warns that their enemies, the Romans, will lay siege and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You and your children within you. That is, within the city. Within their, their homes. This judgment will not just fall on the adults. It will also fall on the children. And that's how it happens for the most part. When the parents turn away from God, when the adults in a nation don't fear the Lord, they lead their children into the darkness as well. 
they lead their children into judgment and condemnation along with them. And oh, how lamentably the adults in the leadership of our country have turned away and have had no fear of God. Think for just a moment how devastating that has been on the children of our nation. It's now 2022, and yesterday marked 49 years since the Roe versus Wade decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that the killing of unborn children was legal in all 50 states. Since then, abortion has become such a part of our culture in this country that even Christian pro-life supporters worry about the cultural impact that it will have on us if the Supreme Court ends up reversing the decision this year. What will we do with all these children? Will we be able to handle all these babies that will be born who would have been aborted? Lord, have mercy on us if that's our concern. We live in a society that has rejected God and 63 million abortions since 1973 have been the result of that. 63 million babies killed in the womb in our country. That is a judgment on us. We have been blinded by our sin and our unrighteousness that we can't even see. We can't even recognize how evil we have become. Judgment is inevitable and clearly deserved if we refuse to welcome the one who was sent to save us. And his message is clear to us. Repent. Repent. Humble yourselves. Fear God and pursue righteousness. So is God just watching us from a distance? Unable to help? Not able to see our trouble because he's just watching us from a distance? Well, there is a much better song that I want to leave you with this morning. It's, it's uh, from the song, Is He Worthy? Uh, written by Andrew Peterson, a song that we have loved to sing here the past uh, couple of years uh, at Stanton Free Church. And, and one line goes like this, do you know the world is broken? We do, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. And do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Our God has drawn near. The King has come near who will one day make it all new. The King has come near who will heal our world, who will truly bring peace. That is the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Again, from the song, does our God intend to dwell again with us on the earth? He does. He does. Make sure you welcome him before he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by 
your word this morning. We're humbled to see the Lord Jesus weep over the people that rejected him, that we're, we're blinded to see that he is the Savior sent. And we pray, Lord, for our neighbors, for our family members, and even for those in here that still just don't see him as that, don't recognize him as Lord of their lives, as the King who has come to save them. May you so work in their hearts, open their eyes, help them to see their need for redemption that can only happen through their faith in Christ Jesus alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.